Good morning, it's Sunday, the 14th day of August, 2016. In 1967, Roger Patterson announced to the world that he had actually captured the legendary Bigfoot creature on film. He and his partner Bob Gimblin had a story to tell, but years later, others came forward and their stories were a bit different from Bob and Roger's, and we look at them on the 101st episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I'm your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. I want to announce today that those little flying insects known as hornets have become my enemy. If you want to know why, check out my video on YouTube. I'll have a link to the video in this episode's show notes. Well, today is either part two or part three of our Bigfoot story, but it is the last. I never plan to talk about the history of Bigfoot again. I will occasionally do Bigfoot news like I've done before, but that's all just in fun. Here's the thing about the Patterson-Gimlin film. There are no definite answers. I mean, from every expert that'll tell you that it must be a man in a suit, there's another expert that'll tell you that it just can't be a man in a, in a suit. For every witness that tells you they know it was a hoax, there are people that ex- can explain to you why that person is lying. Now, like I've said, I don't believe that there is a Bigfoot creature out there. Of course, it would be cool if there was, and I really hope I'm wrong. The thing is, for a population of these creatures to survive, from what I've read, they would need, at the minimum, 5,000 adults, and probably more. So if you ask me what I believe, I'd have to say, with all the available evidence, that the Patterson-Gimlin film is a fake. Look at it this way. There has been thousands of people hunting the woods in Northern California, hanging up motion sensor cameras, using sound equipment and all sorts of electronic gadgets, and they can't seem to get any real images of the thing. They say it's because this creature is very good at avoiding humans and really just wants to be left alone. Yet Patterson and Gimlin were on horseback and they were able to sneak up on one of them and and take this movie. Something that no one else in 49 years has been able to do. I just find the whole thing hard to accept. But like I said, just because I don't believe there's a Bigfoot doesn't mean that there isn't one. I just find it highly unlikely. And so... Alright, it's time for UFO News. Headline from the Syracuse News Time. My recent New York UFO sighting. Apparently, columnist Cheryl Costa was driving home after spending a weekend with her husband after celebrating their wedding anniversary when they noticed, and I quote, an intense illuminated object traveling from the western sky. It gleamed brightly in the late evening sunlight. It was a bright white cylinder-shaped object, but was a little flat on top. Now, of course, I wasn't there. Maybe they did see an alien spaceship. 
But I know that the even smallest metallic object can look spectacular when the evening sun is shining right off of it. And the fact, whenever you look at an object in the sky, it's very hard to judge scale. I'm just saying that it could have been a drone or maybe a mylar balloon that got away from a small child and reflecting sunlight gave it a strange appearance. I don't know. Anyway, Cheryl is correct. It is something in the sky that she can't identify, so yes, technically she did see a UFO. Anyway, let's get to our story. Let's hear a few takes on what others had to say about the Patterson-Gimlin film. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. The most convincing visual evidence of Bigfoot is a film taken by Roger Patterson in Northern California. Dr. Krantz believes it to be authentic. I've examined the film many times, uh, watching it forward, backwards, stop frame, measured and everything. And all of the anatomy of the creature is perfectly consistent. <clears throat> it does, just simply does not fit with a man wearing a suit. In fact, a suit of that size, we can establish exactly how big it is. There's no way a man could fit into it. The shoulders and chest are simply too wide. The feet are um, properly designed for carrying that kind of body weight, and uh, that doesn't make any sense uh, unless you've got a body of that size. And Patterson uh, could not have faked any of this stuff. I talked to him about some of the things I saw, and he didn't even understand what I was talking about. It's time people knew it was a hoax, Bob Hieronymus told the Washington Post back in March 7, 2004. It's time to let this thing go. I've been burdened for this for 36 years, seen the film clips on TV numerous times. Somebody's making a lot of money off this, except for me. But that's not the issue. The issue is it's time to finally let people know the truth. So this is Bob's story. In the late 1960s, Hieronymus was working as a Pepsi bottler from Yakima, Washington. One day his friend, Bob Gimlin, told him that he should meet one of his friends, Roger Patterson, because he was going to make a film. At the time, Hieronymus lived about 15 minutes away from Patterson. According to Hieronymus, Patterson came up with the idea of making a fake Bigfoot film, and he was looking for someone he could trust. Someone who wouldn't tell the media or television people or anybody that he played the creature. Roger came to Bob because he was a very big guy about 6 feet tall and weighed 190 pounds, who wouldn't have to labor too much in the heavy costume. Roger offered Hieronymus $1,000 to play the part and, as Bob said, as long as it's not illegal, he'd do it. There's no law against running around the woods in an ape costume. They made a gentleman's agreement that Bob would be paid $1,000 for two minutes of work, and for a 26-year-old kid, that was a lot of money. Patterson told Hieronymus that he was going to sell it to the movie people, the movie companies, and they were going to pay him a lot of money. He traveled up to Roger's house, and behind his shed began to try on the costume, an ape suit that Roger said he had made himself. Both Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin helped him to get it on. It was a complete furry suit with ape feet attached and with a head that went on like a football helmet. Hieronymus said it weighed about 20 to 25 pounds. They began to work on the walk. Roger said, I want you to bend your knees a bit. 
Make fast rides. Swing your arms like a monkey or a gorilla. It took about two or three times before Roger said, That's perfect. That's exactly what we want. A week or two later, Patterson and Giblin stopped by his parents' house and picked up a horse. They told him to drive down to the Bluff Creek area in a day or two and meet at a gas station outside of town. They were going to get there early and scout the area. A couple days later, he borrowed his parents' car and met them just where they said, at the gas station. When he arrived, one of them ran over and told him to drive down the road a bit and wait for them, afraid that somebody might see the three of them together. After Patterson and Gimlin finished filling the truck up with gas, they met Hieronymus down the road, and the three of them went to the campsite. Once there, they hid Hieronymus' car in the bushes. After their morning coffee, they traveled on horseback to the area they had picked out. Patterson and Gimlin helped him into the costume. Bob Hieronymus waited until he got the signal from Patterson and then began the now famous walk alongside the creek. It was a real hot day and sweat was pouring off Bob as he walked. Patterson had told him to look back towards the camera twice while walking and he did just as instructed. As soon as Patterson yelled cut, Bob jumped into a big hole by a fallen tree afraid that somebody might shoot him. After all, this was the beginning of hunting season. He yelled for the two men to come over and take the suit off of him. Both Patterson and Gimlin were excited over what they had filmed, and it was done in one take. Roger said, that's perfect. You done a perfect job. Once back at camp, Hieronymus packed up the ape suit in the trunk of his car. Roger gave him something, either an envelope or a box, with the film inside. He told him to take it to Eureka, California and mail it to his brother-in-law, L.D. Atley in Yakima, Washington. They told him that they were to go back to the place where they had made the film to make plaster casts of the footprint, or more likely, make the tracks that they wanted. He said the ones that he saw of the plaster casts later were nothing like the ones he had made. Bob Hieronymus, after a 14-hour car ride home, went right to bed. While he was sleeping, his mother needed the car to go shopping and she looked in the trunk. She saw the suit, as did his nephew and aunt. They all tried on the ape head. Later, after his nap, Bob took the car with the suit to a local watering hole. Some of the boys asked him what he had been doing the last couple days, and he took him outside and opened the, c the car trunk and said, Take a look at this. Don't forget what it looks like. He wanted to make sure that when the film came out, they would know that he wasn't lying about being the man in the costume. Once Patterson and Giblin returned the next day, they took the suit out of his car and Hieronymus never saw it again. Nor did he ever see Roger Patterson again. A few weeks later, the film was made public, and all his friends knew Hieronymus had played Bigfoot. In fact, he said that most of the residents of the area knew that it had been him. He kept his mouth shut for many years because, for one, what he did wasn't illegal, and for another thing, he was still hoping to get the thousand dollars from Roger Patterson. He never got the money. He said it never bothered him that he had tricked so many people, but now he says, I decided that people should know the truth. That film is a hoax. He told Bob Gimlin that he was going to come forward and tell the truth, and according to Hieronymus, Gimlin said, I've got to deny it. I've lied about it for this many years. To save face, I've got to keep lying. Bob Hieronymus took two lie detector tests, the first one by Jim McCormick, an examiner who did contract work for the Yakima Police Department, and then a second test, 
on a PAX cable TV show on May 17, 2005. It was administered by the high-profile examiner Ed Gelb, and he passed both tests. The strangest part, he said, is that he still considers Bob Gimlin a friend. But during a question-and-answer session with Bob Gimlin, Gimlin was asked if he considered Hieronymus a friend, and Gimlin answered, Friendship is something that's pretty valuable. I speak to Bob Hieronymus when I see him. I don't consider him a friend. Oh, by the way, I just wanted to say also that it was only Roger Patterson and I down there at the time. No one else was down there. Now, people who believe that Roger Patterson actually shot film of Bigfoot have pointed out that for a costume to be as realistic as the one in the film just wasn't something that was available in 1967. Where did the suit come from? That brings us to Philip Morris. Morris is the owner of Morris Costumes, a North Carolina-based company offering costumes, props, and stage products. He first came forward on August 16, 2002 on a Charlotte, North Carolina radio station, WBTAM. He said he waited that long because he feared that would affect his business as he was never supposed to give away a magician's secrets. At the time of the Patterson-Gimlin film, he was running an ad that said, Sale, Gorilla Suits, same as used in movies and TV, were $750, now only $450. This ad was run weekly, and one day he received a call from a fellow named Roger Patterson. He asked if Roger was a musician, and Roger said no, he just wanted to play a gag on some people. Morris thought he must be pretty rich to spend that kind of money on a gag. Roger asked him if it looked like a real gorilla. Morris told him that, well, it looked like a Hollywood gorilla. What he didn't know at the time was, Patterson wasn't looking for something that looked like a real gorilla. He wanted something more Neanderthal. Patterson told him that he didn't know if he could use the suit and wanted Morris to send it. And if it was something that he could use, he'd send a check. But if he couldn't use it, he'd send back the suit. Morris said, of course, no. He made a counteroffer. He said, send me a money order and I'll send you the suit. If you don't like it, send the suit back and I'll send the money order back. It took quite a few months before Morris received the money order from Patterson. Some say this is just because Patterson didn't have the money and had to get it. After Patterson received the suit, and again, this is according to Philip Morris, Patterson called Morris with some questions. His first problem was the shoulders were not bulky enough, so Morris suggested going to a local high school and borrowing football shoulder pads. Now this goes along with Bob Hieronymus' story in which he said he wore these shoulder pads. Morris said that the way football shoulder pads were made back in the day made them look under a gorilla suit like they were moving muscles. Patterson said he also wanted longer arms, so Morris advised him to have the actor hold onto sticks with the gorilla hands at the end. One other change Patterson made in the suit he sewed on breasts because he wanted a female Bigfoot. Morris said this about the way the creature walks, which a lot of experts say is impossible for a human. The Bigfoot researchers say that no human can walk that way in a film. Oh yes, they can. When you're wearing long clown's feet, you place the ball of your foot down first. You have to put your foot down flat, otherwise you'd stumble. Another thing, when you put on a gorilla head, you can only turn your head maybe a quarter of the way. And to look behind you, you've got to turn your head and your shoulders and your hips. 
Plus, the shoulder pads in the suit are in the way of the jaw. That's why Bigfoot turns and looks the way he does in the film. He has to twist his entire upper body. Unfortunately for Morris's story, he's never been able to provide any solid evidence like a bill of sales or receipt or anything. It's just his word against theirs. Now, in 2004, he worked with National Geographic to recreate the film with the help of Bob Hieronymus. The producer, Noel Doxter, said of the suit that Morris provided was in no way similar to what was depicted in the Patterson-Giblin film. Morris then refused to sign a consent release, saying that he had inadequate time to prepare the costume and that the month it was in was the middle of his busy season. But since that day, Morris has never attempted a recreation again. Now remember Ray Wallace. He was the guy, according to his family after his death, that was the jokester who started the whole Bigfoot thing in Northern California by faking the footprints. Now according to Mark Javinsky, editor of Strange Magazine, it was Ray who told Patterson where to look for Bigfoot. Mark wrote that Wallace told him, Roger Patterson came over a dozen times pumping me on this Bigfoot. I felt sorry for Roger Patterson. He told me that he had cancer of the lymph glands and he was desperately broke and he wanted to try to get something where he could have a little income. Well, he went down there exactly where I told him. I told him, you go down there and hang around on the bank. Stay up there and watch that spot. Now, I don't know what this means. If Ray was faking the footprints, and it seems to indicate that he was going to help fake a Bigfoot sighting. Or maybe he was going to fake the Bigfoot and give Patterson what he wanted without Patterson knowing it was a fake. I don't know. Many who knew Wallace said he had nothing to do with the Patterson-Gimlin film. So that statement remains a mystery. One of the most serious accusations of the film's authenticity is the timeline. The film was shot on Kodachome 2 movie film, and as far as what's known, that could only be developed by a lab containing a $60,000 plus machine. And of the few West Coast labs known to process this film, did not do so on the weekends. Al DeAntley, to whom Patterson had sent the film to, claims not to remember where he took the film for developing or where he picked it up from. Also, many critics say that all the events between the time the film was shot to the time Patterson and Gimlin arrived in Willow Creek was not possible. David J. Gangling, who wrote the book Bigfoot Exposed, an anthropologist examines America's enduring legend, said all the problems with the timeline disappear if the film is shot a few days or hours beforehand. If that's the case, one has to wonder what other details of the story are wrong. And finally, we have Greg Long's book, The Making of Bigfoot, The Inside Story. In the book, rather than examining the film, something that's been done to death, he looked at who was Roger Patterson anyway. He spent several years interviewing all that knew him in the Northwest, tracking down old witnesses and taping interviews with anyone who was even vaguely connected to Patterson or the film. In an interview with Michelle Akakis, a Czech radio broadcaster and investigative journalist, Long said, I decided to see if the film did show a real Bigfoot. I wanted to know the truth. And then later he said, I go to where the truth takes me. Patterson was a sad figure, a psychopath, and a man dying of cancer. 
but he could have still lived a moral life. He could have made a living in other ways than conning people. He had an artistic talent and a way with words, and could work with his hands. He could have funneled those talents if he tried, but he took the easy way out. Lying, obfuscating, cheating, stealing, manipulating. However tragic Patterson was, he could have still died with honor and integrity. That's what counts in the end. Regardless of who you are, poor or rich, ill or healthy, shouldn't you strive to be honest, good to your fellow man, and achieving success without lying, cheating, or stealing? Or are certain people above the law? Pictures of the creature would seem to be all the proof that's needed to confirm Bigfoot's existence. And the most famous picture of Bigfoot is this one, taken by Yakima, Washington rodeo rider Roger Patterson in 1967 in Bluff Creek, California. Patterson took about 28 feet of motion picture film, the most controversial film of its kind. It startled the scientific world. Anthropologist Grover Krantz of Washington State University, Dr. Donald W. Grieve, a London scientist, and Dr. Dmitry Donsky, the chief of biomechanics at a Russian institute, all studied the film, and they could find no reason to doubt the film's authenticity. And John Napier, a primate biologist formerly of the Smithsonian Institution, also studied the film, and he wrote in his book that he, too, is convinced that Bigfoot exists. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. One thing I can say about believers, whether it's Bigfoot, aliens, conspiracies, whatever, they're always very passionate about their beliefs. It almost becomes like a religion. In some ways, one could admire them for their passion, but there's that danger. Because it seems like strong believers will only accept evidence if it supports what they've already chosen to believe and will fight or ignore all evidence that is contrary to those beliefs. I don't claim to know what's right and what's wrong here. I can only look at the evidence that's available to me at the time and make a judgment based on that evidence. From what I've seen... I think everything points to the film being a fake, but that being said, I'm willing to change my mind if new information is brought forward. I think everyone should be willing to accept the fact that they might be wrong, but it's something about a strong belief that seems to prevent that. In today's story, I offered a few versions of those that claim to be involved in a hoax. Are they lying or is Roger Patterson and Robert Gimlin the liars? We'll never know for sure. Everything that I've talked about in today's story can be explained or argued against by those that are true believers in Bigfoot. If the Patterson-Gimlin film is something you find yourself interested in, I wouldn't take anything I've talked about today at face value, but I would do your own research and make up your own mind. But be warned, there's a lot of people out there who will tell you exactly what you should believe. But if I could point you in one direction that may explain why a creature like Bigfoot is highly unlikely, from a scientific point of view, the podcast Monster Talk, episode 105 from May 25th of this year, had a Dr. Eugenie Scott, who is an anthropologist, you know, a trained scientist. Anyway, she goes on to explain why, scientifically, it's just not likely that something like this creature would exist in the wild in this day and age, but you never know, right? 
One more thing, all over YouTube, you can find versions of the Patterson-Gimlin film. And in many of these versions, people have stabilized or enhanced or isolated certain sections. And they all say, now, after this processing I've done to the film, you can clearly see this bit of evidence or that bit of evidence. And it really doesn't work that way. You can't get more detail out of a film that doesn't have the detail in it. When you enhance or sharpen a video you're changing it and then it just doesn't work that way if you if you want to watch it make up your own mind the only way to in my opinion the only way to actually do it is watch the original patterson film so anyway and now the ending credits we at psycon could use your help keeping our podcast going you should think about becoming a sponsor at our Patreon page. Just go to Psycon.fm for more information. And of course, a sincere thank you to all of you who support the show already. We're here because of listeners like you. Speaking of Psycon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find an amazing amount of geek culture. Do you need a daily dose of geek news? Check out Geek Days, which brings you the latest news from the world of geek culture. Check out this and other shows at Psycon.fm. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason to complain or just say hi. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, and we have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. Story ideas are always welcome. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin to do so, then just go over to iTunes and leave me a review. Those reviews really help. Remember, all the sources that I use to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, and my wife of 32 years for being my wife of 32 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost the show on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. Until next week, this is Jeff saying so long. And no more Bigfoot stories. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Dawn of just new day Coffee with Jeff Coffee Coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee Coffee with Jeff Years go by and life's filled with change Sometimes your plans get rearranged He's seen it all and he's weathered it too So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you 